0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin a good, good two days of coverage. Out at Jackson Hole, we are thrilled that Michael McKee and Kathleen Hayes uh, are there and is always the host of these Kansas City meetings within their district is Wyoming and Jackson Hole. Here is the president of the Kansas City Fed, Esther George.
1: The economy is doing well and based on what I see today, I think two more rate hikes this year could be appropriate. But I also uh, am mindful, that's not a commitment, that each meeting you have to reassess and understand what are you seeing in the data, what are you hearing from uh, your constituents that you talk to, uh, and make the decision at that time. So hopefully everything uh, holds together as we get to the end of the year. Would you say that the committee has coalesced around that view now, is that a strong consensus? So I think if you look at the dot plot which the committee puts out, you read the minutes, you read the statement that's come out, It would suggest that there is a degree of consensus around the state of the economy. But obviously, within that committee, you are going to get differences on how many rate hikes are appropriate at this stage. Earlier in the year, you were worried about the pace of growth and inflation picking up concern that Fed policy might have to move faster. That earlier in the year view, is that what you're expressing now? Or do you think this is going to have to pick up even more when we get into 2019? So based on what we see today, I don't think uh, the performance of the economy that we've seen and the way inflation has performed is argued for going faster or or fundamentally changing the course. Uh, But I think an upside risk would be that we have pro-cyclical fiscal policy happening at a time when we have accommodative monetary policy. And so we have to watch that risk and see how that unfolds. When you think about DOTS, have you penciled in a number of rate hikes for 2019 yet? Well, I'm obligated to pencil in a number of rate hikes, whether those will come about. It's always harder, as you know. I can see maybe the next quarter, the next two, looking into 2019, will be a function of whether this uh, economy continues to perform as we see you have an help. estimate you'd like to share with us? So I could see if getting back to somewhere in the neighborhood of a 3% uh, neutral rate, which is how I think about the long run uh, neutral rate would suggest that we need to make several more moves next year too. Okay, I'm glad you raised the question of the neutral rate because there seems to be a very interesting discussion within the FOMC now, mm-hmm. not just about where the neutral rate is, but how you use it. Do you get to neutral, your view of neutral and stop? Or do you say, mm, gotta go a bit further and make right. sure we don't have an inflation issue? Yeah, so this is, will be a big challenge for the committee. I call it threading the needle which is we've arrived at a point where it will be important to judge whether our policy is restrictive or still accommodative, and that will be a function of looking at the data increasingly. Um, And it's why it makes it hard. This is not an observable benchmark. If we could see it, then we could be more clear about where that is. So I look to the consensus view, the median view in that forecast, to see people are coalescing somewhere around two and a half to three, And we have to just be conscious that that policy operates with a lag and to see how inflation, employment, growth in the economy unfolds. So would you put yourself in the camp that says, when we get to 3%, I'm ready to pause and see what happens next? So I don't know if it'll even be 3%. We may see by the end of the year, depending on how the economy unfolds, uh, that we should always evaluate that. So I take it a meeting by meeting approach, Kathleen, to really try to judge um, how far and how fast do we need to go?
0: An annual kickoff to Jacksonville can't convey the symbolism of that interview, mm-hmm. Kathleen Hayes with the President of Kansas City Fed. Uh, Ms. George. Uh, the symbolism of this meeting and the symbolism of that first interview, is profound there is no one that can capture the moments through the years of the importance of jackson hole than our michael mckee who joins us uh right now um michael let me get a bear update first the same bear cam up in alaska uh, but it is the wilds of wyoming has, has, has there been a bear sighting this year
2: uh we have not seen a banner at jackson lake lodge however i was in montana uh, the last couple of days and, uh, day before yesterday was watching some grizzlies. So there are yeah. bears out here. I don't think they're invited to this. Conference.
0: The bears are certainly not invited to the conference with a 4% run rate GDP to go to the papers first. I mean, away from the chit chat. Is there one paper that really stands out? Is there an anticipation of a certain academic and the importance of 20 or 40 pages? Uh,
2: not at this point. Um, the interesting thing, Tom, about this uh, meeting is that the Kansas City Fed tries to stay on top of issues that we'll be uh, facing central bankers in the years ahead, and they got a very good one this year, market structure and the implications for monetary policy, and that encompasses a lot of things, including electronic trading and uh, dark pools and all that sort of stuff, uh, but it's not directly related to monetary policy today. So we'll have to see uh, what the papers tell us about where uh, economists think yeah. the, the, the whole market structure is going, but the conference itself is not going to produce any kind of consensus or any kind of... Uh, aha moment. Uh, you remember, I know you know Michael Woodford a couple of years ago yes. he had a paper here that was very influential about forward guidance, forward guidance in the minutes yesterday. They were yep. talking about uh, perhaps they're going to finally drop that and whether it worked or not. But uh, nothing like right. that expected from this particular... Meeting. And John
0: Farrell, a year ago or two years ago, the, the paper of Marvin Goodfriend on negative interest rates had a heated debate uh, as well.
3: Yeah, Mike, just to get to Friday with the speech from Federal Reserve Chair... Jay Powell, all we know so far, discussing monetary policy in a changing economy. What's expected from him tomorrow?
2: Uh, We don't really know. Uh, You know, this has been – this committee – this meeting is – I think this is the 42nd annual meeting, and 40 of them have had rather bland keynote speeches from Fed chairs or their designated uh, representative, and two of them from Ben Bernanke in 2009 and 2010 set the stage for future Fed policy action. And so the markets really started to focus on what the chair says here. And I suppose Jay Powell could offer something, but we're not in crisis. And. Uh... There doesn't seem to be a need for him to make news here. So my guess is he won't, but uh, there's always that possibility, so you've got to pay attention.
3: Yeah, Mike, it just seems to me at the moment that we're not in crisis. We're certainly not anything but. The polar opposite, I would say. But it does seem that we're moving towards an inflection point in the minds of some strategists that we speak to on a daily basis, waiting to see if they slow down on rates or if they slow down with the balance sheet. Where do you think the uh, the focus lies right now, with rates or on the balance sheet?
2: Rates—they're not going to change the balance sheet unless uh, somebody really, really forces them to. If something happens, uh, what you might see is that they end the balance yeah. sheet reduction a little sooner if we continue to see some of the, the reactions yeah. that we have seen, because they may discover uh, they've always said that they are going to bring the balance sheet down yeah. to the level needed to conduct effective monetary policy and uh, keep the banking right. system operating well and. They may need more reserves than they thought um, that were going into the reductions, yeah. but uh, that's on autopilot. They don't want people to see that as a tool of policy right now. Yeah. They want people to just let that run in the background and focus on
0: rates. Now, Michael, this is really important. John Farrell, we're trying to get out to Wyoming, only if you, you know, he's got to go out there with you. Is he tough enough to do the static peak divide hike? Or does John got to do the String Lake Loop hike to get all that good scenery? But you know, it's an easier hike. What should he be doing?
2: Oh, I think he should do both. Um, it is—it's definitely worth it. And John, John is uh, definitely strong enough for that. Uh, what I'm— not unlike sure others, whether we, uh, yeah, who will not be mentioned. But I think if we put him in a cowboy hat and boots, it'll be interesting to see what he looks like. We'll take him to the rodeo.
3: I—I I would I do don't the think rodeo. That would yeah. be a good look for me. Can we, oh, just, can I, we just do the hike with a helicopter? And, you know, well, we took the, to the
0: out We took the Sikorsky one year out, but you know the altitude. It's like serious. serious. Mike, how how tall? How what's the altitude at Jackson Hole?
2: I think we're uh, uh, around uh, seven or eight thousand. Seven or eight thousand. Yeah, That's what we got. Yeah,
0: it's enough to <laughs> you know laze away the afternoons. Michael McKee, thank you so much. With important interviews including Mr. Kaplan of Dallas. In a third or fourth or fifth or sixth week of August, summer sets in with distractions, the news flow being part of that distraction. Jackson Hole with a bunch of interesting interviews now. But overnight, nine hours ago, the president tweets out on South Africa. I have asked Secretary of State Pompeo to closely study the South Africa land and farm seizures and expropriations and the large-scale killing of farmers. Quote, South African government is now seizing land from white farmers, unquote. And he credits this observation from his uh, uh, watching uh, Tucker Carlson over at Fox News as well. And then, John Farrell, the headline that follows on at 144 in the Bloomberg is something really I don't think I've ever seen. South Africa to summon U.S. ambassador. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe I've ever seen
3: that. It's diplomacy in 2018. has changed yeah, a lot, hasn't it? It has changed a lot.
0: Uh, Amo Mabatha in our Johannesburg studio and joins us. Now, Amo, uh, give us some color here on how the government is responding to the presidential tweet.
2: Well, we've seen responses from all over government, not only from yeah. the ruling party itself and the <clears throat> presidency, but as well as from opposition parties really speaking out against President Trump's tweet and some of the comments that were made there. We know that the Foreign <laughs> Affairs Minister, Lindy west has said that she will be um, communicating directly with the U.S.'s um, Secretary of State on this particular t- tweet to get more clarity. And as you mentioned, that the U.S.'s Acting Ambassador uh, Jesse Le Pen has been uh, summoned to meet with some of the representatives from the Department of the International Relations on yeah. clarity, but also to just outline some of the comments that were, were put out by President Trump uh, earlier today.
3: Amo Mbatha, South Africa economics and government reporter, joining us from South Africa. A remarkable situation, Tom. And it just sort of makes you quite concerned about stirring up the emotions of the apartheid. In the same way, the Germans are very concerned about stirring up the emotions of the 1940s. Well, I, I,
0: but, but it, it's a for very sensitive for, issue. For the people watching us who aren't watching Red Sox baseball or Manchester United, the fact is, John, the news flow, the dynamics of this new technology of news is stunning. Yeah. That we would have a tweet like that from any president. It's not a judgment of this president. I mean, what does the next president do? Do they tweet as well?
3: Well, I will say Secretary Pompeo <clears throat> is getting a taste of what Secretary Tillerson had to deal with exactly the State why don't you bring in it's our, our guest
0: uh, who has some important perspective and Alan,
3: Alan, just to talk to you not as an fx strategist but someone from south africa walk me through just how delicate this kind
4: of situation is um yes i mean it's it's it's, it's as you say delicate on almost every level uh in so much as you know historically um Land was uh, disproportionately allocated to whites under the apartheid uh, regime and, uh, you know, their, um, you know, so-called Bantustan um, type uh, um, misappropriations of land, really, were, you know, in terms of you know, really being allocated to white farmers in particular, was uh, seen as a, a big part of the legacy of apartheid. So you have that on the one side, and of course, then you have you know what you have uh, more recently as a number of uh, white farmers have been uh, killed, uh, as, as was mentioned in the tweet. Although you know, this is not no one's saying this is orchestrated by the government. There's just a very high crime rate in South Africa. But beyond that, I think it's uh, you know, there's a certain sense that um, you know, a lot of white South Africans would say, "Are oh, we now are marching down the road that uh, Zimbabwe went down uh, in terms of its uh, attempts at land reform, etc." So, um, look, I think history has shown that land reform is a very tricky, very, very tricky uh, thing to implement yeah. in a successful way. Um, I would say the modern economy would. Uh, tend to downgrade the importance of land in terms of broader income distribution. Um, You know, the agriculture as a share of GDP is tending to fall globally. It's becoming less important in the new economies of this world, really, in a sense. So in that sense, you know, maybe there's a little bit more hope. I want to ask you this question now as the co-head of FX Strategy at Deutsche Bank. It
3: was quite interesting to see the FX reaction to this. I know we have a stronger dollar story in EMFX this morning, but quite clearly the Rand was the underperformer through the morning. Why is the South African Rand reacting to this?
4: Well, we don't know, really know where this is all going, right? So we don't know is this an isolated tweet or is this something that uh, um, the US perhaps uh, will take more seriously, um, you know, will impact? Uh, South Africa trade with the U.S. Uh, these these are you know open questions. One would presume not, but uh, it's not a total given really. And I would said if you said to me um, twenty four hours ago, would we even be talking about this? With, would this even be a factor of any sort? I'd say absolutely not. Alan Ruskin, it's great to have you with us this morning. Thank you Alan, very thank much you for joining for the
0: comments us. Comments on South Africa,
4: Deutsche Bank's global co-head
3: of FX strategy.
0: Right now, Francisco Blanche with us. And what's so great about his research at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, is it's so holistic across all of commodities. Francisco, is an opening comment. What do you most focus on now with the metals, the softs, oil, the rest of it? What has the Francisco Blanche attention?
5: Um, hey, Tom. Thanks for having me once again. Um, we are we are pretty focused on, on uh, U.S. policy right now. I mean, we think U.S. policy is really driving the entire commodity complex. Uh, on the one hand, you have uh, sanctions on Iran, which are about to kick in in the next couple of months. Uh, at the same time, we have this whole uh, trade uh, trade war going on where the prices of soybeans in, in the U.S. versus Brazil have, have widened pretty dramatically because of the uh, uh, retaliation actions by China. Um, and, and honestly, the other issue that's uh, really uh, uh, a great area of focus is what's happening to uh, interest rates, right? I mean, that's really knocking down the, the, go, the price of gold, uh, the, the continued escalation in U.S. Well, rates. So the commodity complex is very influential but right now, what's emanating from Washington.
0: Okay, but is, is gold, is it a new gold? Is the calculus of gold, the dynamics of gold, is it like it's always been, or is it a whole new beast?
5: No, you know, Tom, I think it's it's like it's always been. Um, Gold's never uh, responded well in environments of of rising rates and and a strong dollar. And uh, we are getting exactly just that. if you remember earlier in the year, we had a weaker dollar environment. We had uh, the euro going into you know, the 123, 124 range, and uh, we've retraced um, pretty dramatically down to 114 and, and back to 115 in the last couple of days. But, but effectively, um, effectively the, the 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 strength of the US dollar has uh, has had a pretty negative effect on the gold price. Oh, um, yeah. The correlation between FX and gold is still very very high.
6: Francisco. Given the fact that you are focused on U.S. policy, I imagine all the strategists getting into a room, looking at each other and shrugging their shoulders. I mean, it's been very hard to sort of uh, (laughs) scheme out what the U.S. strategy is going to be. Have you ever had such an uncertain backdrop given uh, some of the trade tensions, given the dollar that nobody can agree on? Uh, Is this sort of uncharted territory for you?
5: It, I mean, it is a little bit uncharted territory in some ways. In in some others, remember uh, one huge change in U.S. policy uh, at the end of last year was the uh, the big tax uh, changes that were pushed through, um, and particularly the corporate tax changes, which has have really uh, beefed up the uh, the stock market, the U.S. economy more broadly, uh, by by basically putting more cash into into the hands of corporates, and. Um, and, and I mean, clearly, yes. I mean, it's, it's been some degree of uncertainty, no doubt about it. Uh, but uh, but we we are in, in, a, in an economy that's growing at four percent. We're in the U.S. I think the bigger question is how do the actions of the Trump administration negatively impact others? Uh, because the commodity complex um, is is highly interconnected to the to the world economy. So uh, we are focused on on U.S. policy in as much as is having spillover effects into China, uh, which as as you know is the main buyer of most commodities except for uh, maybe oil in terms of our consumption basis. Um, but, uh, but, but China's, uh, the effects of the U.S., the US uh, uh, various U.S. policies on China are, are very, very important to us. And that's, that's frankly, if you ask me what am I concerned about in the next 12 months, yeah. well, I'm definitely concerned about U.S. rates, about, uh, I'm concerned about uh, trade policy, and, and uh, I'm also concerned about Iran right. uh, sanctions policy, but I'm also very concerned about what's happening in China, uh, given how, how, okay. uh, how frail uh, the Chinese economy could be at this point.
0: Before we run, what is your bet then, long or short? Where, where is the opportunity within all this?
5: Um, so we, we still think that uh, you don't want to be too short oil in this environment. You want to be more on the long side. Uh, we are calling for $90 oil for next year. Wow. Uh, we think once wow. the That's trade tensions – Wow, a Well, uh, for Brent, uh, WTI, a little bit less. We think it'll be probably maybe $85. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, we, we see prices moving a lot higher because as you remove uh, the world's fourth largest seller of oil or, or producer of oil in the market, which is Iran – um, you're going to have a pretty big vacuum here. Shale can no longer respond uh, uh, as fast as it was over the last couple of years Why not? because of pipeline constr. There's pipeline constraints. We we haven't invested in MLPs. You, know, you follow the MLP story, the Master of the Partnership. Yeah. Investment in midstream has mm-hmm. been a bit of a disaster. We don't have infrastructure to move oil out of the U.S. right now, out of the U.S., out of the Permian Basin, and it's getting trapped in there. And and we're not going to solve that for another 12, 18 months, just as the. Yeah. As the oil from Iran gets removed, oh. and and look, I mean, we, we've had some risk in emerging markets in Turkey, namely in Argentina, but that hasn't infected the entire emerging market uh, scene yet. Yeah. Uh, once, it, once it does, then I'm going to get more bearish. But but for the time being, we still get positive data yeah. points from the emerging world. Francisco. Uh, doesn't that, mean story.
0: We got to leave it there, but we have to have you back uh, to talk to us uh, about this uh, higher price for oil. Francisco Blanche with Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. But right now, let us look at the unraveling of the ruble. Bring up the chart if you would, a dollar ruble uh, right now, the incredible stasis, the oil success perhaps of Russia coming out of the crisis, just very good. And then here's the unraveling, and now this new leg up. In ruble weakness as well. Richard Turner with us with BlackRock in London. Nina Schick of Rasmussen joining us from Berlin as well. Nina, I guess it becomes international relations at one point, but the weaker ruble doesn't seem to be part of the Russian calculus. Is that correct?
6: I think that for Russia, I mean, the economic—it was quite clear that the economic hit based on the sanctions starting in 2014, orchestrated by the EU and the United States, was always something that it could weather, because (coughs) fundamentally what has shifted since the invasion of Crimea by Russia in 2014 is that Russia has come back with a bang to the international negotiating table. You know, it was frozen out by the Western allies after the invasion of uh, Crimea. And since then, you know, Ukraine has kind of fallen off the international agenda, Russia's involvement in Syria, Russian kind of interference in the United States but all across the European countries as well means that Russia is certainly a player that all countries have to contend with, which is very interesting, therefore, that Merkel had her meeting with Putin here in Berlin just last week, and she's seeing this increasingly as Europe's relationships with Donald Trump right. goes increasingly sour. She increasingly sees Putin as somebody who has to be part of the conversation. Oh. Putin has managed to make himself look statesmanlike next to Donald Trump.
0: R- Richard Turner, I mean, let's go back to first principles here. Is Russia a frontier economy? Is it an EM economy or is it part of the G8? So,
7: Russia's been caught up in the volatility affecting many emerging markets over the last few months, and that's been associated first and foremost with tightening financial conditions and a rising dollar, which have exposed many markets which have weaker fundamentals, weaker growth, uh, larger external deficits. We've then had a series of emerging market-specific events, whether it's in Turkey, in Brazil, in Argentina, which I think have had a significant knock-on effect. Uh, on to Russia. And at the same time, you're starting to see rising global trade concerns. We have talked about the oil price earlier being impacted, and that's added to the impact on Russia as well. So all these factors contributing to this uh, foreign exchange volatility within the Russian market, in our view, that's starting to create some opportunities actually in broader areas of emerging markets. You've seen risk premium rise significantly. What, that, what does that mean? It means cheaper valuations, it means investors being uh, paid more for taking emerging market risk.
1: When, when does that change? I don't know whether it, you know, there's going to be a catalyst where you kind of feel comfortable also to take a position on some of these weaker emerging markets.
7: Well, our is right now, we wouldn't be stepping into some of the weaker areas with the soft fundamentals. We don't see an immediate catalyst for change. But for long-term investors, we do see very attractive opportunities in those emerging markets which have been indirectly hit by some of these capital outflows. Areas actually like China, like India, uh, and broadly Asia, where you've seen money flow out of emerging markets not differentiating between those economies with weak fundamentals and those with strong.
1: Um, Richard, I know Tom actually has a ruble chart, but I want to ask you about dollar, because depending on what happens with dollar, the outcome for these emerging markets could be very different to their debt.
7: So the dollar's been playing a critical role recently in the volatility within emerging markets. We see the dollar continuing to rise going forward, but we see that rise at a much more gradual pace. So why is that? Well, first of all, we see the the rise in interest rates in the US, which has been playing an important role driving the dollar higher, has been to a large extent now Priced into the market. We see positioning towards the dollar, which was actually quite cautious at the beginning of this year, becoming now very long. So, the market, you know, the, 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 you know a strong dollar view is a widely held consensus view in the market. Many investors have positioned for continued dollar strength. And whilst the fundamentals continue to point for the dollar to move higher, our view is actually that's likely to be less aggressive and less disruptive for emerging markets. But for investors in emerging markets, we'd still recommend hard right. currency right now.
0: Uh, wonderful. Richard Turner, thank you so much for BlackRock. Shick, Schick, uh, thank you so much to the Rasmussen from Berlin as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.